listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the book of Acts, how Christians live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. Today we're going to look at the salvation of the sinister minister. Salvation of the sinister minister. Courtesy of God's word, turn with me to Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1 as we work through the entire book of Acts. Here we are, chapter 9. Philip has gone and preached the gospel. He's led the Ethiopian eunuch to salvation in Jesus. And here's what's been happening while that's been going on. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John chapter 14 makes that very clear. So the believers early on, they're being referenced wholesale as part of the way. Now, there's a cult today called the way, and isn't that just like diabolical plan of the enemy to hijack something sacred, something beautiful, something biblical, take it out of context. There's a cult called The Way. This is where that title or that name comes from, and they've abused it, distorted it, perverted it. But early on in the first century, later on we're going to see in the book of Acts that the Christians were first called Christians at Antioch, little Christ's followers of Jesus in terms of character and how they behaved. But here, early on, it's called the way, so that if Paul found any, Saul found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. What a ready, willing vessel, servant of the Lord. What a great example he is. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he is seen in a vision, a man named Ananias. That would be you. Come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Uh, Ananias realizes, wait a second, there's something that I'm missing in this story. This is the attitude that he's expressing in what comes out of his mouth right here. It's not disobedience. He just needs some explanation. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. 
Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, this is what really needs to sink deep down into what we're going to be covering today. Because we can read verses of Scripture, think we understand them, and yet we really don't. All who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. I want you to understand what's taking place here. Paul has letters of approval from the leaders of the church in Jerusalem to pursue believers who have traveled from Jerusalem to Damascus. And now Saul is on a mission not from God. We're going to see who he is serving as we go through this passage in our time together. Saul is on a diabolical mission to go after, to pursue Those believers in Jesus in Damascus bring them back to Jerusalem and have them face the Sanhedrin. The same people, at least a chunk of them, who were responsible for condemning Jesus to the cross. And in some of your translations, it says that Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. It's not that Saul was going to murder these individuals, but he was looking to have them put to death. That's how angry he was at the believers. And I've wondered as I looked over this passage of scripture, I wonder where Saul was, this young man who was there when Stephen was being stoned and was giving approval of his death. I wondered where was Saul when Jesus was ministering? Where was Saul as we're going to see? He was studying to be the leader of the leaders of Israel, a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. That's what he was studying to be. And so I wondered, I wonder if during that illegal trial of Jesus that was happening at night when the Sanhedrin met, they didn't have all the members there. They were supposed to have all the members there. They were supposed to meet during the daytime. They didn't meet during the daytime. It was hastily convened. And that's the way that trial, quote unquote, of Jesus took place. And I wondered if this young man named Saul, who was so zealous for Judaism, maybe he was there. Maybe he was there when Jesus was being tried. Maybe he had heard about what happened 
in what's recorded in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost, when people were given the supernatural ability to speak a natural language and declare Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the Savior. Maybe that's part of the reason why Saul was so angry with people of the way, the believers in Jesus as the Messiah, as the one who was spoken of in the Old Testament that Saul so dutifully had studied and committed to memory. Do you understand why I'm calling him respectfully the sinister minister? This is the story, the salvation of the sinister minister. He had been a very religious person, excelling in Judaism among all of his peers, a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. We're going to look at a section of scripture that refers to that in our time together today. And yet, he was far from God, and he was close to God, simultaneously. He was far from God in that he was persecuting the living and true God, God's anointed, God's appointed, God's chosen, the Messiah, Jesus, spoken of in the Old Testament scriptures that he had studied and committed to memory on his way to being a leader of leaders. And yet, he is the very one who's persecuting not just the church, but also Jesus, who birthed the church. Let's back this up a little bit and understand exactly what was happening so that you have something to take away this week as you endeavor to live for Christ. Maybe for the very first time, maybe you've known Jesus for a long time, but you need to be reminded, if you've had this brought to your attention in the past, you and I need to be reminded of how we're supposed to live for Christ and the tendency of how we can, in the course of time, forget the things that we need to remember when it comes to serving Jesus. Look with me, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9. Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so he's operating under the leadership of the Jews, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Amazing. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's a great Reminder for us, great thing to understand, bully the bride and grieve the groom. If you bully the bride, you grieve the groom. It's not your place, it's not mine. To go to a wedding and to criticize the attractiveness or what you might perceive to be the lack of attractiveness in the bride on her wedding day. And yet, you know, many people can do that when it comes to the body of Christ, the church. Happens all the time. Now, for a non-believer, for somebody who hasn't yet given their life to Christ, that's understandable, and it's going to become even more understandable by the time we're done in our time today. But what I want to talk about briefly is how people who are part of the body of Christ and how we can have a tendency to criticize with a critical spirit the church You've done it, I've done it. You ever heard somebody say, I just don't like the church, or the church is, and then fill in the blank. 
then you have to wonder, well, which church are they talking about? There are seven churches that Jesus talked about in the book of Revelation. So which particular church are you talking to? Are you talking about the church around the world, all of those who are born again, who have given their lives to Jesus as their Savior, all of those in the United States, in Canada, in Central America, in South America, in Europe, in China, in Russia, in India, in Australia? Are you talking about the whole church? Well, I'm not talking about the whole church. I'm just talking about the church in America. Okay, well, we've narrowed you down. So you're critical of the church in the United States of America. Well, are you talking about the church in New England? Are you talking about the church in New Jersey? We could say a lot of things about the church in New Jersey, I'm sure. I'm from New Jersey. We could say a lot of things if we wanted to, okay? But we won't. Are you talking about the church in Florida? Are you talking about the church in California? talking about Washington, Oregon, which I'm talking about the church in Pennsylvania because that's where we live, at least this is where we are, right? Okay, so you're talking about the church in Pennsylvania. Well, are you talking about which county in Pennsylvania? Are you talking about Pittsburgh? Or are you talking about, I'm talking about your county. Okay, well, which church is in your county? Are you talking about Seven Valleys or East York or West York? I'm talking about Seven Valleys. Okay, There's a handful of churches in Seven Valleys. Are you talking about the church where you and I attend? Yes, I'm talking about our church. Thank you. Why didn't you just say that in the first place? I've got a problem with our church. Okay, we can talk about that. We can talk about that, but let's do it respectfully. Let's do it honorably. It's important for leaders in a church to evaluate what's happening in the church experience does not make you better at anything in life. Haven't you realized that? Experience will just make you older and perhaps more foolish as time passes because you keep doing the same things and expecting different results. Einstein, Albert Einstein said insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Evaluation keeps you from merely aging and helps you make adjustments to your life, adjustments in your family, adjustments in the church, any church, any local church. You know, there's only one church, the body of Christ, and then there are many outposts of that church. You see that in scriptures. You see in scripture, the church of Galatia, the church in Ephesus, the church of Philippi, the Philippians, the Colossians, where the Colossians worshiped. You see that again and again. There's only really one church, the body of Christ, those who are born again, saved, rescued from their sin by simple saving faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So we have to evaluate what's happening in the church. It's important to do that. Is what we're doing effective? Is it not effective? How do we lead people to the feet of Jesus? For example, a church should be asking, the leaders of the church should be asking, Are we creating environments where God can really move or are we just fooling ourselves? Are we getting out of the way so that the Spirit of God can move? Don't fool yourself. Book of Revelation. Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door of my church and I knock. Does anybody hear my voice? If anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and do what? And move in my church. You know, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. Jesus is a gentleman. We read at the end of John's Gospel that the doors and windows were locked. The doors and the windows were closed. And Jesus comes in and says, hey, peace to all of you. So it's not an issue of Jesus not being able to get in through doors and windows. It's a matter of Jesus wanting to be welcome in his own church. And so the leaders of a church need to ask this question. Leaders of a life group, home Bible study need to ask this question. 
Are we creating environments where God can really move or are we fooling ourselves? Are we really building the only kingdom that's going to last forever? There are a lot of people doing their own thing. You need to make sure that you're doing God's thing, God's way, building his kingdom in the power of the Holy Spirit. Our mantra should be the same mantra as John the Baptist. When they were pointing to him and giving him an opportunity to glorify himself, what did he say? Oh, Jesus, he must become greater. I must become less. And you know, it was Jesus who said of John the Baptist, his cousin, I tell you that born of a woman, there is nobody greater than John the Baptist. Nobody greater than John the Baptist. You have it on Jesus' word. And yet John the Baptist's testimony was that Jesus must become greater. I must become less. It's important for a church to ask evaluative questions to make sure that we're really promoting the name and the agenda of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. A church needs to ask this question in an evaluative way. Is the Holy Spirit really moving at our church? And if not, why not? It's not God's will that the Holy Spirit not move. Now, I'm not talking about in a Pentecostal way or a stereotypical way, the way you might think I'm using it. I'm talking about in a biblical way where Jesus is being exalted, where people are coming to know Jesus as Savior, where there's testimony after testimony after testimony of lives being changed. The whole Christian life is all about surrender. And if you're not surrendering to deeper and deeper degrees in your life, then you have forgotten the golden nugget, the epicenter, the center the crux, the foundation, the walls, the door, the windows, the roof, everything that Christianity is about. The whole Christian message, the whole idea of being a disciple is he must become greater, I must become less. So how is Jesus becoming greater in your life? What is the Holy Spirit asking you to surrender? He will ask you to surrender more and more. That's what discipleship and sanctification is all about. He will take you deeper. Listen, Saul, the sinister minister, thought he was serving God, understood the scriptures better than you and I understand the scriptures. Let me tell you, he did. And he was missing Jesus all along. And later on, this man, Saul, who became the apostle Paul, would say, I have suffered the loss of all things, to take up in the place of all those things, the person and the works of Jesus. And that's not just God's calling for Saul. It's not just God's calling on an apostle, Paul or Peter or John. It is God's calling on anybody and everybody who has given their life to Jesus. If you don't understand the importance of surrender, then you understand this truth. Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The problem with a living sacrifice, you listening? The problem with a living sacrifice is that it has a tendency to crawl off the altar. And if you're not careful, you will forget the centrality of surrender to Jesus. Only a life that is surrendered to Almighty God, that remains continually surrendered to Almighty God, 
committed to the Lord Jesus, committed to the person and the works of Jesus, surrendered to him. Jesus surrendered to the Father so that you could live a surrendered life. Only a life that is entirely surrendered to God is a life that will bring God consistent, eternally significant, consistent glory. So here, you don't know if Paul was riding a donkey, riding a horse, walking along with others. He gets knocked to the ground. And he comes to this rude awakening that changed his whole life, and it's this. To criticize the church is to criticize Jesus. Be very careful about your criticism against the church. If you're a follower of Jesus, we always provide the only time criticism is appropriate is when it is evaluative, when it is constructive for the purpose of leading the church to the feet of Jesus, causing the church to be more led by the Holy Spirit, which is the only way a church can really give glory to God. So when we criticize the church, we do it respectfully. We do it with humility. We realize that what we say about the church, whether you're talking about your church as a local church or in sweeping terms with a big brush, talking about the church around the world, which is crazy when you stop and think about it, no two churches are alike. There are ethnic churches. There are churches that are traditional, churches that are quote unquote contemporary. But you know, if you're a church and you say that your worship service is contemporary, that's just the new traditional, that's all that is. There are all different kinds of churches They worship differently. They have different ways of governing and leadership, different ways of worship, the way they play instruments, whether how they do that. They're all different kinds of churches, but you need to be careful in using sweeping terms and having a critical spirit against the church because to criticize the church is to criticize the one who birthed the church. And it's Jesus. It's not even the apostles. Jesus birthed the church. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it until the day when Jesus returns. And so this is the moment where, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you might be thinking, well, I have been critical toward this church or another church or the church. You need to connect the dots. It couldn't be any clearer. Jesus shows up, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? Could have easily said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Paul would have understood that. Saul would have understood that immediately. What he has to say, who are you? Lord, I'm Jesus. And you're persecuting me. Bully the bride, grieve the groom. Be very careful as a follower of Jesus about your criticism against Jesus masked in the veil of speaking against the church. Listen, there's no such thing as a perfect church. There are a lot of problems with the perfect church because it doesn't exist because you joined it, remember? But from God's perspective, the church is beautiful. It's a group of people who, while they were still sinners, Christ died for them. It's a group of people who were like pigs wallowing in the mud when God, through Christ, came and said, I want to wash off that mud. It's the story of 
prodigal after prodigal after prodigal, sons and daughters going their own way and their own power, pleasing me, myself, and I, when God came in and said, I want to give you a robe of righteousness that you don't deserve, but yet you're tremendously valuable to me. And see, when we begin to understand things from God's perspective, which is why studying the Bible is important and central to your life as a follower of Jesus, our thinking, which is so limited, is replaced with God's thinking about ourselves, about other people, about relationships, and about the church. And instead of having a critical attitude, our criticisms might become constructive with fear and trembling and respect for the person and the work of Jesus. Here, Paul helps us understand with absolute clarity that to persecute, to speak ill of the church is to speak against none other than Jesus. Now in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26, we have more insight here about what happened here with this bright light that shone around him, right? It's recorded here in Acts chapter nine. Luke is recording it there. Turn with me to Acts chapter 22, verses four, five, six, and seven. Acts chapter 22, Paul is giving his testimony. Transformed man. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished, hopefully killed. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You can read the rest of Acts chapter 22 now that your appetite's been wet and you can read more about Paul giving his firsthand testimony about his salvation. But let's look at Acts chapter 26, verses 12, 13, and 14 as Paul gives us more insight, all right? He's giving his testimony again in this connection. Verse 12, Acts 26, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests at midday. O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads are the things that were used on a horse or a donkey to get it to go in a certain direction. And if the goads are being kicked in a certain way to get this horse or this mule or this donkey to go in a certain direction, you ain't got any chance of making it go otherwise. That mule or that donkey or that horse is going wherever you are, you, however you're using those goads to get it to go in that direction. And what Jesus said to Saul, I'm not inviting you for your input about my calling on your life. You are going to obey me and you're going to follow me. And you know what's amazing about this in Acts chapter 9? The rest of the book of Acts is about Saul who became Paul and how God used him on his missionary journeys and how 
really, when you stop and think about it, we are all beneficiaries of this dramatic, supernatural salvation of this once sinister minister who became the mighty super apostle who wrote Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all these great books of the Bible, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. There's no other writer of the New Testament who wrote more of the books of the New Testament than Saul, who became Paul. Aren't you thankful that Jesus didn't write off Saul saying, that's a sore sight. I'm not interested in that guy at all. No, God, in his wisdom, saw something in even Paul's upbringing that Paul, by the time he becomes the apostle, had been trained as Saul in all the ways of Judaism. Do you think it's a coincidence that God used him of all people to write the majority of New Testament books? Saul was chosen before the beginning of time. God was working even in Saul's Judaism, even in his devout lifestyle to prepare him. Oh, he was going to be a leader of leaders, all right. Just not the way he thought he was going to be a leader of leaders. Not in his circle of influence with the Jews, studying under Gamaliel, as you can see in elsewhere, elsewhere in the scriptures, that he was studying under Gamaliel to be the Pharisee of Pharisees. God had called him. God was going to use that zeal within him to plant church after church and to write scriptures that we're benefiting from even to this day. When you have your quiet time, when you have that private time with God each day, and I hope that you do, even if it's for a brief time, do it. And you open up those New Testament letters, you need to remember Romans 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. These are books written by none other than the apostle who was once a sinister minister, Saul, who became Paul. This bright light shines around all of them. You know, the Bible makes it very clear. God dwells in unapproachable light. God is light. There is no darkness in him. You know, the Bible says God is love, but he's not only love, he's also just, he's also merciful, he's also holy. Isaiah 6 says God is light, the Bible also says. Isaiah 6 says that God is holy, 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 holy. Elsewhere in the scriptures, God is light. And this light, it says, is so bright, brighter than the sun, And after it flashes around and after Saul hears his name called personally and sees Jesus in this vision, one of the qualifications of being an apostle, you have to see the Lord. Paul says it elsewhere in the New Testament. The others don't hear the voice the way Paul does. Now that shouldn't surprise you in John chapter 12. You can read it for yourself. Where a voice from heaven speaks and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am pleased. Listen to him. The people hear what sounded like thunder. Others say an angel spoke to him. They didn't hear the specific words, but they were spoken to Jesus. And in the same similar kind of a way right here, they hear a sound, but Saul hears the voice of the very one who would then use him to plant churches and to write a big chunk of the New Testament. 
an amazing story of how somebody who appeared to be beyond reach was actually very close to God all along. You know, you could be somebody who's gone to church religiously. You could have been brought up in a religious family. You could be very familiar with the scriptures. You're probably not as familiar with them as Paul was. If a guy like that can be simultaneously close to God and far from him, it should be a warning shot for you and for me. That we should remember again and again and again that going to church simply means you go to church whether or not you know Jesus as your savior and your God personally, whether or not you acknowledge him as the Messiah of the Old Testament in your New Testament time in which you live, that's a different story. You've got to make a personal decision about whether or not Jesus is your God, whether Jesus is your savior. And knowing about the Bible is not good enough. Going to church is not good enough. Even being baptized You might have been baptized as a child. I was too, raised Roman Catholic. That doesn't mean that by any way, shape, or form that you had saving faith. I can tell you with absolute certainty, I do not remember my baptism as an infant. (laughs) I certainly don't remember giving my life to Jesus during the first few months of my life. Now, an amazing thing here as we look at this scripture in Acts chapter 9, look with me, verses 6 through 12. Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city, Jesus says to him, and you will be told what you are to do. There's not a discussion here. There's not a debate. Not give and take. When God speaks, it's over. And he should be speaking to you in your life. When he speaks, it's over. It's a done deal. That's why I say again and again, your answer to God should be yes before you even know what he's asking you. You can trust Jesus all the time with the uncertain things of your life. You know, Paul's whole career, Saul's whole career instantaneously changed in an instance. His career course to be a leader of the Jewish people, hmm. Pharisee of Pharisees, hmm. All got altered in the twinkling of an eye, a flash of light. Verse six, but rise and enter the city, you will be told what you are to do. The men who are traveling with him, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. John 12, an example. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, later on in the church, in the history of the church, it became a practice among some to fast before getting baptized, before water baptism. But that's not what this is talking about at all. This guy's doors were just blown off. He came to realize what he had been persecuting and coming against vehemently. That Jesus is the one spoken of in the Old Testament scriptures that he was dedicating his life to. He was in shock. He's in disbelief. Even as he believes. Absolutely, fundamentally, saved, transformed, in a state of shock, couldn't eat, couldn't drink anything. He had seen, you know, for a Jew, this is a big deal. He had seen the Messiah. He received a personal calling from the living and true God. 
the one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, now appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus. Now, I don't know about you, I know about me. This guy's persecuting the church. He wants to have men and women killed because they're following Jesus. That guy don't deserve any grace whatsoever. See, when we have that attitude, we don't understand the grace of God given to each of us and the mercy of God given to each of us. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Many people are waiting to get their life to a certain point where they feel that it's at the place that God can then accept them. You have it all backwards. You will never get your life organized. Listen, it's like your garage, okay? Your life will never be organized to the degree to which it will be organized the instant in the twinkling of an eye that Jesus becomes your savior, your God. God cleans up your life. All we do is surrender to him. All we do is get out of the way and say, Jesus, would you fix what I broke? Here we say, it needs fixed, right? Would you fix what's broken? Would you straighten out what I've made crooked? Would you come in and lead me? Because without you, I'm just like Saul. I'm blind. You know, Matthew's gospel, if you look at Matthew 23, 24, Matthew 15, 14, you'll see Jesus criticizing the leaders of the nation of Israel. Though they have eyes, they can't see. And this is one of those guys, Saul. Couldn't see, spiritually. You know what's amazing about this story is the confirmation. You know, revelation requires confirmation. So important to understand that. Revelation requires confirmation. And here we have that confirmation coming from Ananias, who has a vision. Hey, you're going to go to this particular place, This go to Straight Street, very specific instructions being given. Go find this guy, Judas, to his house, and you'll find a guy there praying, Saul of Tarsus, and you're going to lay your hands on him. He's going to receive the Holy Spirit. They needed to have the dots connected. This guy who had such a terrible, terrible reputation, the church needed to know that he was the real deal, not phony baloney. They needed to know that he was the real deal. That's why the laying on of hands was important for Saul in becoming the apostle Paul. They needed to know that this guy was real, that his conversion, that his salvation was real. And see what we have here, it's not like Muhammad, the only guy who receives the revelation for what became Islam. It's not like Joseph Smith, the only guy who received revelation for the foundation of Mormonism. That's convenient. Here we have this story about Saul seeing Jesus, being spoken to by Jesus and being commissioned by Jesus and God also speaking to Ananias confirming God Almighty's work in Saul. And the rest of the book of Acts is about that. Listen, all those epistles that I mentioned earlier, Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, all the rest written by Paul who was 
Saul. It would have been easy for them to come up, to stand up, somebody to say, wait a second, that's a bunch of gobbledygook. That story about Saul's conversion, bunch of baloney. Everybody knows it went down this way. We don't have that happening. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11, Paul, Scripture, the book of Galatians, giving his testimony here. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, unlike Joseph Smith's gospel, unlike the gospel, quote-unquote, of Muhammad, which became Islam. It's not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, undeserved favor, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Remember, Ananias says, this man is my chosen instrument to preach to the Gentiles, testimony of a third party. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Peter commends the writings of Paul in one of his letters, if They were not accepting Paul as an apostle. Believe me, it would have come out. You have third-party testimony about the authentic, real transformation of the man who was a sinister minister now becomes a mighty apostle and is embraced by the leaders in the church. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, verse 20, and what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie, he says. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. You can't make this stuff up. Third party testimony again and again about the apostle Paul's conversion from Saul being genuine and being real. And what you and I need to remember is that we need to be very careful that we don't write other people off as if they're beyond reach. What if Ananias debated with God and said, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, I heard about this guy's reputation? See, Ananias knew what it was to say yes to God before he knew what God called him to do. I know this guy's reputation. There's no way that he's the real deal. There's people in your life that you might think are very far away from God, beyond the reach of the Almighty, of no use to Almighty God. And I'll tell you what, you're wrong. You're dead wrong. When my father, when he was on the fourth floor of that hospital in Florida, and he was in his room, he did not know I was behind him at one point, and he had already given his life to Christ. There were nine days from the time he gave his life to Christ to the time he left this world and saw the Jesus that he gave his life to face to face, nine days. And in that time, because of my father's past, because he had a trucker's mouth, 
He was very adept at saying words that had less than five letters in them, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> a very violent and angry man at times, acting in ignorance. I had the ability, I was standing behind him, and one of those words came out of his mouth. He was frustrated, he had pancreatic cancer. He was nearing the end, he was weak, he was frail. This man who had been strong all of his life was coming to his end. Colorful words came out of his mouth, and then without any human being correcting him, he said, I'm sorry, Lord, please forgive me. You know I needed to see that. I needed to hear that. I needed to see the work of the Holy Spirit in him. Without any human being trying to correct him, God was at work in his life. You know, my father, during that time, was laying down on a cot. I had brought him over to a cot because he was so weak, and he was breathing heavy. Helped him lay down on the cot, and he was on his back, and he, he's breathing. And he says, you know, when I see Jesus, he's going to punch me in the nose. I said, Dad, what are you talking about? That's bad theology. You gave your life to Christ. Jesus is not going to punch you in the nose. He, says, he puts his hand up, and he, he wags his finger at me. He says, no. When I see Jesus, he's going to say, See, it was all true. And just after 8.30 in the evening, earlier when I had led my father to Christ and he's on a different cot, I said, Dad, it's time. You need to give your life to Christ. Would you like to do that? Yes, I would. Why don't you do it? I can't. Something's blocking me. I said, Dad, I'm going to pray a warfare prayer for you. He began to weep like a baby, 79-year-old man weeping like a baby. He said, oh, I've been waiting for somebody to do that. And right there on that cot in the fourth floor of that hospital down in Florida, as I prayed, didn't coach him, put his hand out to his side as if he was embracing the Lord. I knew he was. And the scales came off of his eyes, and he met Jesus as his Savior and as God and his master and his Lord, and in the twinkling of an eye, all of his sins were instantaneously removed. What if I had thought that he was as wicked and as dastardly and as hopeless and helpless as Saul? The fact of the matter is that anybody and everybody, before they give their lives to Christ, they cannot see what you now see. And I'm going to give you a scripture to help you understand and remember. In the midst of your family, with that family member who seems so far from God, they might not be as far as you think they are. In the midst of your place of employment, those people who you think are so far from God and so beyond reach, they might not be unreachable after all. In your neighborhood with those neighbors who you think are too far away from God, too disinterested in God, too hostile to Jesus, too hostile to the church, you don't know what God might have planned for them. You don't know what God might be doing deep down inside of them. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul, interestingly enough, wrote this. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, Ephesians 2, verse 2. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
Don't you forget for a moment, and if you've forgotten, it's time to remember. People who have not yet given their life to Christ cannot see, even if they want to see. And you might be the Ananias in somebody's life. That family member who seems obstinate and diametrically, diabolically opposed to God. They are. They might not be able to help themselves. God might have put you in their path to be the Ananias to lead them to see Jesus as their Savior. Same might be true at your place of work and in your neighborhood. None of us is in a position to write people off when we don't know how God might be at work to do something above and beyond what we can dream or imagine in the very people who we tend to write off, naturally speaking. Get out there and be the Ananias in your place of work. Get out there and be that Ananias in your family. Get out there and be that Ananias in the church. You don't think there are sinister ministers in the church? People who have grown up being religious all their life and know their Bible inside and out and yet are still hostile to God? There are. When somebody is saved, salvation brings transformation. Look with me back to Acts chapter 9, verse 16. The words of Jesus to Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake and my name. We begin to see that in the book of Acts. Get a taste of the suffering of Saul who became Paul. We just need to understand that we've been sold a bad, a bad basket when it comes to the church about people preaching and teaching this false gospel that if you come to know Jesus as your savior, everything will resolve nicely for you. God will put a ribbon on it that everything will resolve perfectly and beautifully. You know, if God calls you, there will be persecution, there will be suffering in your life. You will be ridiculed by people for no other reason than because you believe in this Bible, because you believe in this Jesus. That's the gospel. That's why you have to settle the issue of whether or not you're going to protect yourself or whether or not you're going to advance the gospel and get it out there to as many people as possible. Suffering is not just something that Saul was called to. Suffering is something that you are called to, that I am called to as a follower of Jesus. It's not possible to safely separate suffering from obedience to Jesus. You will be misunderstood. You'll be frowned upon. You will not be invited to parties. If that's the worst thing that you endure, then God is really good to you. You must be persecuted. If you are really being faithful to Jesus, you will be persecuted. Get over it and get on with it. Get over it and get on with it. Go and be that Ananias you need to be to the world. The world needs you. One person might need you, and you don't know how that one person, because of your obedience to Jesus, might end up being a spiritual dynamo like Saul, who became Paul. Don't let your fear get in the way. Let your reverence for Almighty God move you and motivate you and charge you that God can use you, he will use you, he's commissioned you and he's called you and you need to understand that the gospel brings transformation. Salvation brings transformation. Look with me here, verse 18, verse 19 of Acts chapter nine and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. 
They were able to see something fall off of his eyes. And he regained his sight. Then he rose and took a few years to consider being baptized. That's not what it says. He rose and was baptized, and then he took some food and was strengthened. You know, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. As a Jew of Jews, Saul would have been baptized many times. It's a ritual bath for cleansing. He would have been baptized into the name of the Jewish rabbi that he was following. Well, the big deal here is that this guy who was persecuting Jesus, who was persecuting the church, was so saved genuinely, and Ananias needed to see it. The church needed to see it. They needed to see that this guy was genuine for Saul to now identify with the Great Commission. That's the game changer. That's the linchpin. This guy agrees with the teaching of Jesus, going to all the world, baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son, putting Jesus on equal footing with the Father, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded for Saul to get baptized in the name of Jesus with the laying on of hands and the testimony of Ananias, the church needed to know that God is able to do the impossible. God is able to take people who seem to be so far away who are really very close and to use regular people just like you and just like me as an Ananias in someone's life to step out in faith and to be bold and to be courageous and to share the only news. The law would not save Paul. Only Jesus could save Paul. And it's the same wherever you go. Whether we're here in the United States or any part of the world, Jesus is the one who can save. Jesus is the one who does save. And you need to be the Ananias in the midst of whatever environment you're in to take the message of Jesus, the transforming message of the gospel and Jesus into your family, into your workplace, into your neighborhood, into your church, all around this nation, wherever you go, because people are lost. They are blind. They are hard-hearted, and they cannot do what many of them would like to do. They just need somebody just like you to come along and show them the way. Will you be that person? Will you take up God's calling in your life? It's not just the calling of Ananias. It's the calling of everybody and anybody who's really given their life to Jesus. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.